digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest today on Digging in the Dirt is the author of the new book entitled The Home Scale Forest Garden, How to Plan, Plant, and Tend a Resilient Edible Landscape by Denny Baker on Chelsea Green Publishing. Now, let me read an excerpt of a review that captures how I feel about this splendid new book. Working with the natural world in our gardens has never been more important with the challenges we now face through climate change. Forest gardening offers hope inspiration and solutions for the future and Danny Baker shows gardeners of every level of expertise and location I might add how to embrace this important method on a smaller scale build resilience and create a low maintenance edible haven with this accessible guide now that was written by Kim Stoddart editor of the organic way magazine and co-author of the climate change garden so let me welcome in Danny Baker thank you for having me oh it's my pleasure so the Homestegale uh, Forest Garden is a great new addition to serious gardening literature and with wonderful photography, I might add. I think more and more of us want to do more with our gardens than planting ornamentals, flowers, and standard vegetable gardens. Mm -hmm. This is a great roadmap on transforming our gardens into edible landscapes that mimics how nature does it. And by the way, from what I've seen, you've definitely developed a lovely enchanted forest garden. So tell us, how did you start this journey and why did you come to feel that you had to write a book? Well, um, I, my profession was as a psychologist. And when it got time to retire, I got really worried about what I was going to do with my idle time. And I live up in the North Country, very rural area. I decided I'd, if I bought a piece of land, I might get busy outdoors. So we found a hundred acre former dairy farm. And we weren't planning to be farmers, my partner David and I, but we ended up becoming farmers, organic farmers. So I was the vegetable lady and Dave was the animal guy. And in the seventh year, I took, I always, I keep myself um, up on recent stuff in farming and so on. So anyway, there was a, a course on permaculture offered by the local cooperative extension. And I'd never heard the word before, but I went to the two hour class and before it was over, the ideas made so much sense to me, modeling an edible garden after nature, that I decided I was going to plant an edible forest before the two hours were up. I came home, I told my partner, cool. and he built me a fence, and we were, all, we were off. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you've gone a long way from looking over your book, my, my goodness. And so I when did, why don't you define a home-scale um, garden for us? Well, it can actually be in, at any scale. If you have a house with, a, you know, you have four foundations around your house, you have a little backyard, a little front yard, you can, you can do a foundation planting. You can do one fruit tree surrounded by other edibles and supportive plants. You could do an edible hedge to screen your, your house from your neighbor. Or if you have a bigger plot and you're more ambitious, you can do an eighth acre, a quarter acre, a half acre. In my case, it's an acre or even more. Um, it's totally up to you. But in terms of the home scale, the first examples would be more relevant. I see, I see. So I'm really interested. I mean, we can get into all the, the particulars of this, but I'm very interested in the second chapter where you say it, the idea is to let nature do the work. Right. So, <clears throat> 
this is based on perma. I'm not a permaculturist, all right? I haven't taken any formal training in that area, but um, I love the concept. So basically in nature, nature takes care of everything. Nature makes sure there's plenty of moisture. Nature uh, makes sure all the plants have the nutrients they need. Um, uh, nature absorbs all the solar radiation. So the use of that is maximizing the garden. So in, in an edible forest, you really are modeling your planting after a forest edge where you have all the layers. You have uh, overstory layers, which might be trees from 30 feet up. You have understory trees, which are usually fruit trees um, in a garden. That would be between 10 and 30 feet. You have your shrubs, many berry bushes or shrubs. Herbaceous plants could, could be perennial vegetables, herbs, uh, edible flowers, ground covers. I mean, strawberry is a ground cover that's an edible uh, flower and fruit, um, roots and vines. So you'll, if you drive down the road, you'll notice where, where the forest ends, all of those layers exist. So you want to model that after nature as high up as you can go. Now you can only, maybe you can only go up to the shrub layer. That's fine. Shrubs, herbaceous, ground cover, roots, vines. That's five layers right there. Maybe only up to 10 or 12 feet. Um, so you want to absorb all the solar radiation by by building your, your planting vertically, you do that. When there's lots of foliage, the ground is shaded, it stays moist. When the ground is covered with something edible or something growing, it shades the ground, the moisture is preserved. And when it rains, the, um, all of the foliage dapples the rain, it, it, it slows it down. So more of it will seep in rather than run off. With global warming, we have much more severe, uh, intense rain events. This way, more of it is absorbed. Plus, even on a foggy day or um, when the, when the um, night temperature goes down below the dew point, a lot of moisture condenses on leaves. The more leaves you have, the more moisture condenses and that ultimately falls to the ground or is absorbed by the leaves. So that's another way of conserving your water. I think the other part of this thing that I really found interesting is mm -hmm. that planting for the, uh, the plant's ability to give things to the soil for other plants. In right. other words, you know, they might find something that has nitrogen or something that, right. you know, something of that nature. Why don't you go over that a little bit? Thank you for reminding me. Yes. So integrating nitrogen fixing plants, other plants that, that drop nutrients from the subsoil, um, plants that attract beneficial insects, plants that might deter pests and disease, all of these things are integrated and many of them are edible as well. In my book, I talk about at least 25 different nitrogen fi fixing plants going from, from roots all the way up to the overstory. Um, many of them have edible parts. There's something called a nutrient accumulator, which is a plant with a fairly deep taproot that pulls up other nutrients besides nitrogen, like phosphorus, potassium, and then a lot of micronutrients that are other plants need. And when their leaves fall in the fall or when the plant dies down, if it's herbaceous, um, those uh, plant parts decay and all the nutrients in them become available to the other plants. What's exa that, an example of that plant? Well, uh, uh, dandelion. Dandelion is <laughs> yeah, a great say. example. <laughs> I was going to say. I'm coming to accept dandelion slowly. Maybe in the second edition, I'll talk about embracing dandelions. I'm not quite there yet, but um, every part of the dandelion is edible. Plus, it concentrates about six different nutrients in its leaves and flowers that become available to other plants when it dies down in the fall. And then, of course, you can have other plants that attract beneficial insects. So 
Uh, plants with tiny flowers attract a tiny little wasp called a parasitic wasp. There's a whole family of them. And when, they, when they're ready to lay eggs, they lay them in or on the bodies of soft-bodied insects like caterpillars. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot, and Queen Anne's lace is an example. It's a wild, it's actually invasive. It's, it's not a native plant, but it's an example, elderberry, um, anything in the carrot family, these all have tiny blossoms that these little wasps can, can use for food. And then they lay their eggs on your pests. Yeah, very good way of getting rid of pests for sure. Yeah, and also the final category are uh, herbs that have um, aromas like lavender. It's thought that these herbs, when the, the uh, oils sublimate, get into the air, that they, the, the odor is so overpowering that it might confuse a pest who may be on its way to an apple tree, all of a sudden encounters a bunch of oregano or lavender and it gets lost. Um, also, uh, the oils have antifungal qualities. So if they do get in the air, they may help protect your, your um, edible plants from fungal diseases. And one layer you didn't mention was the fungus layer. Wait, That's right. Wait, wait, That's right. Expand, expand on that a little bit because- Well, you know, fungi are really important for soil health. And one thing in an edible planting like this, you don't disturb the soil at all. Once you plant, you leave it alone. You just add organic matter on the surface. Organic matter naturally is added as leaves fall in the fall. Um, and so that really encourages the fungal life. And in addition to that, um, I've actually incorporated edible mushrooms in my garden by creating totems, which I inoculate with mushroom spawn. And also I actually used a trunk of a tree. I cut the tree down to about six feet and I inoculated that trunk with um, oyster mushrooms. And that's actually my most successful venture into this area. Really? Yep. I get about five pounds of mushrooms twice a year out of that. Very cool. reliably. Very cool. So you say after planning and establishment, the amount of labor required diminishes substantially as time goes on. But isn't it something like this? Uh, you know, it's a really long term project. And right. how long do we have to wait till something starts paying off? Well, you know, a lot of herbs and some um, fruits you harvest the first year, like strawberries and perennial herbs, chives, oregano, anything you plant, you, you're going to be able to harvest the first year. A lot of other berries start producing uh, fruit the second year. Um, some trees, elderberry, I mean, that's, that's a, a tall shrub. It's not really a tree, but that'll produce fruit the first year. Uh, some things you have to wait a while. Um, I waited, let me see, I waited eight years for my first, um, my first American persimmon fruits. I still haven't gotten any pawpaw fruits and we're pushing nine years on those. Um, nuts can take a lot longer. I have some, uh, uh, some um, hardy pecans planted two trees, and that'll be a while. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen anything yet? No, but, they, they, but they're surviving, which is pretty cool in the zone four having pecans. Yeah, some of this stuff is a long wait for sure. That's right. Yeah, but so, you can har you can harvest a lot of things within the first. So year. we skipped over almost the, the amount of labor required diminishes substantially right. as time goes by. And you know, let's talk about that because I think that's an important aspect of this. Okay, well, it it doesn't mean it's eliminated. Okay, I it's a mis mis <laughs> misinterpretation of thinking. There's a lot of work. Garden and then you walk away and and you know forever you have wonderful harvest. Compared to the same size annual vegetable plot the labor does reduce significantly. Once you have your ground covered with, with plants that you choose that are getting along with each other, there's no weeding, 
There's no cultivating. You're done planting, right? Annual vegetables you plant every year, you cultivate, you weed, you have to prepare the ground every year. You're done with all of that. However, you still have to do, you have to make some management decisions and there's quite a bit of maintenance work that needs to be done. You need to do some pruning um, in late winter. You need to make sure that the plants are growing the way you want them to. And I've been very successful in some of my plant combinations and not very successful in others. Um, in fact, in my book, I talk about one bed that I actually started again from scratch and redid. <laughs> <laughs> That's nature and that's farming and gardening. That's right. But compared to the same size annual vegetable garden, you will find that there's a lot less labor. The, the one kind of labor that really expands with time is the harvesting labor. Mm -hmm. And it, what's so cool to me is you plant it once and you might harvest for 10 or 20 years from that same plant. I'm talking to Danny Baker. She has a book out called The Home Scale Forest Garden, How to Plan, Plant, and Tend a Resilient Edible Landscape. I want to tell you, we're not getting into any of the depth that this book has. It has a lot of great planning and you can learn a lot from Danny because she's already done it, you know, and, and I like what she said in the book. If Danny Baker can do it without much prior experience, you can too. So I think that's the truth there. You have three parts and maybe for time's interest, I'll explain that the part one describes the overall process of planning and developing an edible forest garden. And then this part two includes detailed descriptions of plants for every level of a forest garden from tall trees to ground covers. And three focuses on the art of combining plants in multi-layered groupings. And we can go on and on with this, but let's, let's try to maybe talk about number two, the detailed description of these plants. Okay. Maybe you can, what are some of your favorites? You know, if somebody's out there says, oh, you know, I have a really extensive garden. I have a little bit more property, maybe a half acre or a quarter mm -hmm. acre. And I want to start yeah. putting in this tree or that tree or this ground cover. What do you recommend in that regard? Wow. Well, you know, I think a lot about the aesthetic appeal of the plants as well as their utility. So for a lovely nitrogen fixing plant um, that also has edible flowers and pea pods, it is a red bud. And it'll, it'll grow to maybe 30 feet high. Um, it fixes nitrogen, it's a beautiful plant. It has, it's covered with uh, tiny pink flowers in the spring. It has heart-shaped leaves that start out reddish and turn green, then they turn yellow in the fall. It has a, a vase-like, form with dark dark bark that looks really pretty in the winter um, and you can eat the flowers you can spring i just had a salad the other day i sprinkled them on my salad and you can eat the pea pods so that's one example and it's native by the way i'm going to just talk about natives if that's okay yeah um, that's another that's native, the best. Plant, native to this you know this continent another plant that i like very much is called a clove currant this is a native plant it's it only grows to be well the, the, a cultivar that I grow only grows to be, I think it's called Crandall, only grows to be about four feet by four feet. Um, it doesn't take much care at all, not very much pruning compared to other currants. Um, it has beautiful yellow flowers covered with yellow flowers in the spring that have a lovely aroma that you can smell from literally hundreds of feet away. And the berries look very much like regular black currants. They're, they ripen in August here in my region. They're a little more palatable than, than the European black currants. And then the leaves are, are very intricately formed, shaped, and they turn lovely colors in the fall. So there's a three season edible bush, berry bush that's native. Let's see, what else can I tell you about? 
I actually invite wild strawberries. Well, they come on their, of their own accord, but when they do decide to enter my beds, I allow them to. And they make a lovely ground cover. They're, they bloom in May, and then they have lovely little tiny berries in, in, um, that are very tasty in June. And then they continue to cover the ground for the rest of the season and turn a lot of neat colors in the fall. Yeah, I've got those in my yard and I've allowed them to grow. There you prolific. go. Right. Yeah, especially in the backyard. I don't worry about the lawn anymore. You know, I have little patches of lawn, but everything else is encroaching now. <laughs> oh, good for you. Yeah. Now, there's another, there's another bush that many people are just starting to hear about. It's called honeyberry, or also known as hascap. And it's native to this continent. It's, it's very cold hardy. It has, it, 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 it's um, drought tolerant. It doesn't need um, acid soil like blueberries. It has blueberry-like berries, but they're actually much more tasty. I think they have like a, a magenta juice that flows out of them um, that actually ripen in, in June here, which is a month earlier than any blueberries ripen here. And um, it's just very hearty and nice light green leaves and the berries are lovely. You do have to net it though. The birds love these blueberries. So you have to net it to keep them away if you wanna have some for yourself. Um, but it's another lovely shrub, only four by four, very lush with leaves. So those are Honey just berry. a few examples. Honeyberry, yeah. Yeah, Honey I have to check that out because I, I have uh, some blackberries in there and raspberries mm -hmm. around. You know, I've been trying to get away from the ornamentals, although we love flowers. So mm -hmm. I'm going to be planting some dahlias later today, in fact. Well, and listen, how about peonies? They're edible. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Peonies, then they're perennial and they're edible. We have yep. a few of those, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Taste them. <laughs> yeah. And I told you we put a we put in a fig tree too, which is doing very well. Nice. Yeah. Well, I, the only way I can grow figs up here is if I put them in the basement and for the winter because it gets way. Sure, sure. I've tried it, but yeah, we're borderline here. But I told you that I had a, I ran into an old Italian guy who said right. plant it next to the dryer mm -hmm. vent, and mm -hmm. sure enough, it's thriving. It loves the heat that comes out that's of that. Great. Yeah, that's great. So they, there's creative ways of doing it, and mm -hmm. you can find a lot of those creative ways in Danny's book, and it's uh, out now. And I tell you, it does have a lot of uh, ways to plan your garden. It's the home scale forest garden: how to plan, plant, and tend a resilient edible landscape so you, you you also have some fun in this book besides incredible photographs of your property my goodness it's you've really developed something really nice i, I really like it up there and, and you're up at the top of new york right and just right. below canada right and it's actually on an island yes uh it's an american island that's actually interstate access the interstate 81 goes on our island and on from here to canada into canada hmm yeah, it's a beautiful area. So, but aren't the winter winters really brutal? <laughs> yeah, they are. Actually, I had honestly, I had a lot of winter kill this past winter. I one thing I talk about in my book is pushing the envelope on on my hardiness zone. I do try to grow things that are zone five, and we're only a four. Um, I try to put them in microclimates or create microclimates for them that will be beneficial. But what we had this past winter, I got the stats. We have actually have a a weather station on our farm, thanks to New York State. Anyway, the temperature went down to minus 20 or below Whoa. five different times. Minus 27 was the lowest temperature recorded at our weather station. Five different times this winter. But the problem was in between, it was often above freezing. Mm -hmm. So what are the trees going to do? Yeah, they're freaking out. Rigidly cold, and then it's like, oh, it's springtime, time to start opening the buds. And so, this is global um, weirding, right? That's right. And this summer is similar now. 
you know, yeah. it's been, we had a hot spell. Now we have a chilly spell. Now we're going to have another hot spell. Last summer, we had a, a, a 10 or 12 day stretch of time when it was so cold, the tomatoes didn't even set fruit. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, it's a lot of variation. Or when they get bud and then all of a sudden there's a freeze and then you lose the right. buds and nothing right. happens. I've had right. that happen down this end of, you know, an apple, right. an apple area that I have. Right. So I have stuff. What do, you, what do you, I mean, I'm a small suburban backyard kind of gardener. Right. You know, I have my right. vegetable garden and I told you the fig tree and a couple right. berry bushes. What, right. If I wanted to go out, you know, this week and buy something to plant, what would you tell me to go out and buy? Well, what kind of fruit? I'd start with a fruit tree. What kind of fruit do you like? Oh, peaches. I like anything. Peaches, peach, pears. Perfect, peach. So yeah. peach, pear. Actually, I recommend pear. Pears, oh. pears live a lot longer, and they don't take as much pruning. Um, <laughs> peaches, the shelf, you know, peaches like live on average 10 years. A pear tree can live like 100 years. Wow. So I'd take, and they don't, you can keep it pruned, but they tend to just grow to 30 feet. I would stick a pear tree in the middle. And then I'd surround it with all kinds of berry bushes that of your choice. You might try a couple of honeyberries, maybe clove currants, and put a ground cover in there, maybe strawberries to start with. Um, one ground cover I really like um, is called, it, for shade, because you're going to have shade eventually down there, is called um, uh, Sweet Sicily. It's, a, it's an herb. It, it has um, fern-shaped leaves, lovely leaves and white flowers it's edible it's self-seeds but it's perennial but it's self-seeds it forms a pretty dense ground cover but somewhat maybe two feet high so i would put that in the back like on the north side of your little bed where it's going to be more shady and where you put your fruit fruit berry bush your berry bushes sort of on around on on the south and east and west side and for nitrogen there's a nice berry bush that would grow really well for you called Gumi. It has nice flowers, it has edible berries and it fixes nitrogen. And I think in my book, I talk about one Gumi plant, which is like six, around six by six feet, could actually provide nitrogen for four or five of the smaller berry bushes. Wow. Cool. So what about urban gardeners? Now, in our area, we have a lot, you know, the Bridgeport area, we have urban gardeners, they share an acre or so with raised beds, they're individual raised beds, and mm -hmm. everybody takes care of their own raised beds. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them if they wanted to tend, you know, since they tend all those separately? Mm -hmm. What would you recommend that they collectively do to help their area that they're growing in these raised mm -hmm. beds? Well, you know, one one person might prefer herbs and just want to grow herbs, which I already talked about some of their beneficial qualities in terms of the, the overall landscape. Someone might like berries and want to have berry bushes. Um, somebody might just be interested in a fruit tree, which uh, you, you could probably grow a, a fruit tree in a raised bed, right? Isn't mm -hmm. it on, right on top of the ground? Okay. Yeah, I would imagine. Why um, not? You know, surrounded by, you know, maybe some kind of ground cover, maybe strawberries. I don't know. Basically, you want in your in your half acre plot or whatever, you want to have a lot of diversity. You want to invite the wildlife in. You want to invite birds in. You want to invite bees in. You want to invite all the beneficial insects. Um, so the more diversity you have, the more wildlife will want to come in there. 
Good. I'd have to see it. I'd have to talk to people and see what their interests are, actually. And then I could yeah. recommend. But it, it doesn't preclude if They all have raised beds. And it's all vegetable right. gardening. They could all get together and put in a tree that helps. They could, of course. Or yeah. an individual could do what I described earlier for your backyard and do a tree surrounded by bushes and ground covers. There you go. Yeah. And so tell me about Hugo culture mounds. <laughs> you, okay. you get into those a bit and maybe they could put one of those in, right? Yeah. Well, if you have a raised bed, you don't really need one. But um, if you don't, this is a good way to, to create a raised growing area without the labor of, of building the wood frame and the labor of carting in soil. So basically, you start with, um, with chunks of wood that you pack really closely at the base in the form that you want the mound to to have eventually, and you can do them any shape, although uh, I wouldn't recommend concave. In other words, you have to have it like rounded uh, um, over the top down to the ground. If you have concave sides, it, it tends to fall apart just okay. because of gravity. So anyway, but you can do them any shape, any size. So you start with your base of wood and then you just put all kinds of organic matter on top. You can use compost, soil, weeds, any you know, food scraps, um, Oh, I've used, like I've compost. gone out and cut, cut reeds, you know, from the swamp and thrown them on and then uh, leaves, wood chips, and you just pile it up in the form that you want. And I like to, to top it with uh, at least two inches of something that doesn't have any seeds in it because you don't want weeds to be growing. And I, I like to build them in the fall and just let the winter rains and snow melt, um, basically moisten the whole thing. And then mm -hmm. they start to decay. And by spring, I'm ready to plant. The benefit of this is the wood in the bottom gradually decays and provides organic matter to all the plants on the mound. Plus, it acts as a water sink. It actually pulls, as it rots, it actually pulls water up from the subsoil. So even in a drought time, there's moisture right inside the mound that the roots of the plants can reach. And then you can plant it with anything that you can put a tree on top. And <laughs> I've done this on tree on top, surrounded by berry bushes, ground cover in there. I've built some of mine in the woods where it's quite shady and I'm, I've, this is more still in the experimental stage, but I've started to plant it with shade tolerant berry bushes and other ground covers like hosta, which is edible by the way. When hosta first shoots up in the spring, that curl of leaf, you can cut that and you can eat it like a, you can cook it like asparagus and other ground covers that are, are shade tolerant. And um, we're gonna see how that works out. <laughs> you, have a, you have quite a few of them on your property from what I, I could tell. I have 14 in the woods Whoa! and I have two huge ones, 50 foot long ones um, in, in the sunny section. Yep. And then I have, let's see, three more in the sunny section. No, one, two, four, no, four in the sunny section. My experimental one was my first one in the shade. Right. So, that's so a lot. they're called Hugel culture Hugel. mounds, right? And it, so what country do they come from? I think they originated in Germany. Germany. Wow, they're very interesting. I really didn't know much about them. And you can find them in this book with by Danny Baker called The Home Scale Forest Garden, How to Plan, Plant and Tend a Resilient Edible Landscape. It's on our friend's uh, website, uh, Chelsea Green Publishing. You have a lot of fun stories in your book, too. I'm going to finish off here. Tell me the, uh, about the goat wedding. Oh, well, um, when we first fenced in the garden, it was full of brush and, and some trees and uh, I had some volunteers working on the farm that summer and we got, we were kind of working super hard. I thought we needed a break. So we had a goat that we had sold to a woman she wanted at Brett. So I called my pastor. She thought I, I wanted to get married to my partner, but anyway, I asked her, <laughs> I asked her if she would, um, 
if she would come and do a ceremony for two goats and she agreed. So we, we put garlands of flowers on the heads of the goats and we marched them over and she did, she blessed them. And, uh, and then they, 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 they went over to the edible forest where they could do their thing for a month, you know, get whatever, um, their honeymoon suite, and they would eat some of the foliage too. That was the beginning of getting that garden ready to plant was getting rid of the foliage. And uh, I sent a press release to the local TV station. They actually put it on the air that night. And their headline was, Goats Get Married, No Kidding. <laughs> that's funny. That's well, it's, you, know, you, you gotta have something to do up there and that, that's far, <laughs> far up north. <laughs> well, I thank you for joining me. I mean, it's a great book, folks. It's the Homescale Forest Garden. It includes descriptions and photos and illustrations and planting plans for groupings of specific plants and different habitats. So you can get a lot out of it and sort of tailor it to what you're doing down here in this area. Uh, it really is for any, any kind of scale of gardening. And, and it's a, a worthy addition to the, the gardening literature world. Thanks for coming on, Danny. Well, thank you so much, Kevin. And that was a really good uh, closing description, too. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You have been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org. 